Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales True Crime Volume 1 book, Australia's first serial killer, Robert Francis Burns. He was everyone's best mate, establishing trust and friendship, and then Robert Burns were moving on his target with cold-blooded, calculated murder on his mind. On a spree that would see him responsible for seven murders in Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia, Burns met his end when hanged at HM Prison Ararat in 1883. Was he our first serial killer? Was he, Chris? It's a very good question. <laughs> um, because there were lots of mass killers around in the early days of Australia, and I'm talking uh, with Burns really about the time after the majority of the gold rushes in Victoria. He had come over from um, Western Australia. He came from Ireland in 1862. He was transported for stealing. Mid-1870s, he was in Victoria, drawn across by the prospect of wealth from the gold fields. Mm. Whether he was really our first uh, serial killer or not, I'm not entirely sure about. What we do know, though, is that he killed professionally uh, for gain, and I think that's the sense in which we use the term serial killer these days, one who kills for the same reason uh, numbers of times. It's interesting, isn't it, because we've got in this same book, the true crime book, Edward Leonsky, who was called a serial killer, and he killed three women wanting to gain their voice, but no material gain. This man was just a ruthless killer. Mm. Um, He didn't need to be called a serial killer. He laid red herrings along the way to throw pursuers off his trail and what made his action so despicable was this is a time when uh, mateship was important because Mm. uh, lots of men were on the road tramping from one place to another to find work often their families were left behind and they relied on each other this Mm. was to help them get through the bush to survive in the bush um, to find work and these were the men uh, his mates if you like um, and the police referred to this often that he preyed on his mates Mm. So take us from the beginning. Who was believed to have been the first victim? The first victim was a bloke by the name of Charles Forbes. His corpse was found with a head missing near Stall in Western Victoria in 1882 by a fellow who was out cutting sleepers. Burns was charged with killing Forbes. Someone had told them that they believed that Burns had done it. Um, but the, the body of Forbes had been left out in the open for so long that the remains were virtually mummified. Um, it had been disturbed by cattle and birds and wild dogs. One newspaper said the case was cold and dead mm. as the body before it reached the hands of the police. So no evidence, basically. Not a lot to work on, but, but he was charged. But what did he, what did he gain from that one? There's every, every probability that he stole the man's money, right, okay. uh, which is, is what happened in other cases. Right. He was put on trial. He was acquitted, although uh, it was generally believed that he was a mate of Forbes, a guy who was found dead. Uh, he'd been seen with him in the days before Forbes disappeared. Mm. One of those days was a day when Forbes would have collected his pay. Oh, fancy. It was often said about Burns that he would be around people who had money. They would disappear and then Burns had money. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, that was his modus operandi, if you like. It's so cold-blooded, isn't it? Yep. Not just to do it once, but he did it again he and did. again. Immediately after Burns was acquitted, uh, police decided to pursue the matter of another mate of his, mate in inverted commas. Mm. A bloke by the name of Michael Quinlivan was found dead in a paddock at Reedy Creek in August of 1880 with his head bashed in from behind. The police investigation showed that Quinlivan and Burns had worked together in several places 
and that, according to some evidence, Burns had induced Quinlivan to withdraw a sum of money at the bank at Dunkeld. And so uh, he was sent to trial. His trial got underway, but quickly got bogged down in legal argument between the lawyers and the judge. After three days, the judge, I think he just about had enough, and he put it to the jurors to decide whether the man whose body had been found had been murdered, um, second, whether the deceased was Michael Quinlivan, and third, uh, whether the murder was committed by the prisoner, Burns. So, I mean, here was the judge really saying... I've got no idea. This investigation hasn't been done very yeah. well because, A, we don't know who the bloke is, B, we don't know whether he was mm. murdered, and C, we don't know whether Burns mm. did it. And, and why? You know, we probably don't have that kind of detail, but why was there such ambiguity about the case or about Quinlivan? I think there just hadn't been a great job done by the police. Mm. But they did bring fresh charges against Burns. No-one quite knows what they are. Mysterious new charges, I mm. call them, for the brutal killing of... Um, Quinn Livin and another trial was ordered. Now, the Chief Justice ran this trial. He said it essentially resolved around the same questions that they couldn't sort out last time. Was the dead man Quinn Livin? Had he been murdered? And did Burns do it? Uh, again, the issue of identification was a problem, and they solved that by the clothes he was wearing. He was identified through his clothes. He introduced some evidence of the daughter of a landlady at a boarding house which uh, Quinn Livin and Burns had stayed at when Burns had given Quinn Livin something to drink that made him very sick. And they also spent a lot of time on a letter that Burns had written to the brother of Quinlevin, suggesting to him that Michael Quinlevin had in fact had gone to Queensland to select some land up there, and that's why he was missing. Wow. The trial continued on to the next day. This was the first day of the trial that happened. The second day, and everybody thought it was going to be a long trial because there were 50 witnesses to be Get called. Correct. But by four o'clock in the afternoon on day two, the judge said, that's enough, and sent the jury out. Um, they were gone for 40 minutes and returned with the verdict guilty. Wow. Well, of course, that just stunned the whole place. The, uh, the One of the papers wrote, the prisoner became as white as a sheet. Coming into court, he was almost shivering, and he seemed to have a, a strong presentment that the verdict was going to be against him. On hearing the word guilty, he dropped his head and sat down. I mean, there'd be grounds for a retrial any day. Yeah. Uh, only five o'clock in the afternoon of day two, and uh, the Chief Justice said he would pass sentence on Burns mm. on the coming Monday. So what a weekend that would be when yeah. he's been found guilty of murder. Yeah. Uh, and you know what that meant in those days. Yes, hanging. Yes, he was sentenced to hang. And on the day that he was to be hanged, he had asked whether he could make a statement to just the people gathered. And his religious advisor advised him not to, so he didn't. Oh, what a shame. That would in be interesting. Well, instead what he did was he got hold of the hangman, who was a fellow by the name of Upjohn, who, while he was pinioning his arms before they hanged him, he told him that he was responsible for eight murders. Oh, wow. Five in Victoria and three in Sydney, he said. Oh, now, see, if he needed to have that statement. He yeah. obviously wanted to gloat. Yeah, well, we're not quite sure why he did that. So was he a boaster or was he insane? Well, Upjohn, the hangman, later gave a, a written statement and finally, I think, an affidavit to the Age newspaper um, in which he said that Robert Francis Burns, who was executed in the Ararat jail on the 25th September 1883, did make the following confession to me during the time I was engaged pinioning him in the condemned cell, that the said Robert Francis Burns said to me in answer to my question whether he had anything to say, I've cooked eight, five in Victoria and three in Sydney, now you're going to cook me. So that was Upjohn's statement. So who were these other victims? Well, this was the, uh, the mysterious part because it was often said that one of the great problems with criminals, um, murderers, particularly in uh, the United Kingdom and in, in crowded parts of Europe, 
one of the uh, deterrents from killing someone was you had to find somewhere to put the body. Mm. Well, that well, wasn't the problem, not the problem in the Australian bush. Yeah. And so he just used to leave them. Um, and finally someone would come across the remains. So, Which the, is stupid as well, because had he buried them out there, I guess they probably would never have ever been found. He did them in such a way that mm. he hoped, you know, when, when they were found, they wouldn't be recognised anyway. Yeah, okay. So all the hard work on this story from this point on was done by the Melbourne Herald. They put a, um, a fellow onto it, what we might call these days an investigative journalist, yes. to start tracking it. And he came up with some of the names. One was a fellow called Richard Going from Orville, which is not far from Bendigo. He was found dead uh, with injuries very similar to those of Quinn Livin, the back of his head staved in, probably with a hammer. And he had some relationship with... Had worked with Burns, yeah. Right. He was found in his, in his hut, which had been set alight by whoever killed him as well. Similar. John Scott from a, a mining area about 40 k's again from Bendigo, so in the same sort of area. It was a drover. Um, he was found in uh, bushland with his injuries. Uh, John Scott had worked and was known by Burns. Mm. Then there was Burns' brother-in-law, mm. which in all the records in the newspapers and elsewhere, I can not find his name. It's just always referred to he was, as Burns' brother-in-law. Brother yeah, mm. he came out from Ireland the year before at, at Burns' request in 1878. But then at the end of uh, 1879, he simply disappeared. The pair, Burns and his brother-in-law, had been drinking at a pub to, not far from Hamilton, a place called Penshurst. The brother-in-law had money on him. Mm. They had a blue. Burns actually got thrown out of the hotel for being drunk. So they both went. The brother-in-law was never seen again. When Burns turned up, the way it was described was that he was flush with cash. So again, same thing. Same recipe for disaster, isn't it? Have money, befriend Burns. Yeah, See you later. That's it. So the other two were Quinn Livin, for whom he was uh, hanged, and Charles Forbes, the headless body. So there were the five in Victoria. Getting the interstate ones is a little more difficult. Uh, the trail's very cold indeed. They uh, believe one may have been at a little town called Gurogari. Mm, where's that? Uh, between Aubrey and Wagga. Right. It involved the death of a man whose remains couldn't be identified, but it had a strong similarity to a man who'd been working with a fellow called Burns. Mm. They were employed by a contractor called George Cornwell. He was interviewed by police as to the disappearance of this fellow who'd been working with Burns, but he'd lost all his paperwork. He employed them, but he didn't have the paperwork that had the records of when people were paid, when this man might have been uh, given money when Burns was around. Yeah. Nothing happened over that one. So that leaves us two unaccounted for victims according to Burns's murder count. Yeah, it does. And I think the Herald couldn't find too much more in Sydney or New South Wales even for that matter, but believe that maybe uh, Burns was talking about interstate murders. There was a fellow by the name of Heenan who worked on the Wycliffe Railway, which was right near where the other victims of Burns were found. He was poisoned and buried in the Ararat Cemetery. It's believed that the police had a strong case against Burns for Heenan's death, but to prove that he'd been poisoned, they had to exhume him. And when they did, they found the body was in such poor condition that they couldn't find out mm. whether it had been poisoned or not. It had been too long. He's almost the luckiest serial killer out, isn't he? Uh, up to a point. Murder number eight, the Herald calls, and I've agreed with them, <laughs> called the missing link. It's the one they can't find. But 
Um, we're relying entirely on Burns' conversation with Upjohn as to whether there really were eight. Mm. Uh, he said it. He said five in, in Victoria, which they found, mm. and three in Sydney, which I think has been um, fairly liberally interpreted as three elsewhere. It also could have been one he killed in Ireland before he came over. Could have been. Yeah, you, you wouldn't know. No. So that was Burns. We'll never really know what Burns' last conversation was about with Upjohn. I mean, all his hope was gone. He had no chance of escaping by saying that stuff. It's a boast almost. Or, or did he just want to go down in history as being yeah. notorious? It's almost like, you know, you got me for this one, but I, I got away with a lot more. It took you a bit to get me. Could be that too. But what I find amazing is the one that he was hanged for really wasn't solid. He it was a little bit ambiguous, and yet he's got away with all the others. Yeah, absolutely right. Mm. Um, Forbes is the one they probably should have got him on. Heenan they could have got him on with the poisoning. Yeah. Uh, the bloke from South Australia, but they didn't. But Quinn Liven and that verdict came down so quickly. When everybody yeah. thought it would be a long, drawn-out trial, 50 witnesses, mm. the judge was just, first of all, happy that he'd identified who he was, yep. uh, that it was Quinn Liven. You know, the next two questions... Seal the deal. Yeah. Yeah, and the jury came back so quickly with the guilty verdict. What grave have we got for a Burns or a victim? We have Burns grave. The victims are not easy to find because in those days, of course, they were often just buried by the side of the road. Mm. That's where they were found, even in the case when they were murder victims. One of them I found, John Scott. But the most interesting of the graves is Burns himself. After he was hanged, he was buried within the walls of His Majesty's prison, Ararat. Which is the norm of the day. Yeah, it was. And there was a plaque put on the wall showing uh, just exactly where he was buried. That plaque's still there, mm. as is uh, Burn's body. Really? And so uh, you can go and see that. And they uh, do tours through the yeah, Ararat prison, they don't do. they? Yeah, they do, yes. And it's open every day of the week except public holidays, Because it's not a functioning prison anymore. It's a no, historical museum, it is, is that correct? There's something like that, yeah. yeah. Certainly not used for housing uh, people anymore. J-Ward, it's called. So you can go and have a tour and, and check out his grave or burial location while you're there. Absolutely. So do you think he was our first serial killer? I think he's got a good claim to it. The jury's out on that one still. You have been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road Tour.